0: Hello, my name is Christine Gordon. I'm the events uh, manager at Readings, and welcome to the Readings podcast today. Uh, I'm very lucky to have Alex Patrick with me. Alex Patrick is a writer and a bookseller for a tremendously good bookshop. What what good what bookshop is that again? That readings
1: St Kilda, lovely oh, Bayside Bookstore,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Alex has taught contemporary fictions and creative non-fiction at the University of Melbourne and conducts novel and short story writing workshops nationally. He is the author of Black Rock, White City... Listed by The Australian and the Australian Book Review as one of the best novels of 2015. It was published by Transit Lounge in 2015 and was highly commended in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards 2016, and was, of course, the winner of the Miles Franklin Award, which was thrilling for Alex, I'm sure, but also for all of your colleagues. We were so delighted when you won that award. It must have been a tremendous
1: feeling, yeah well, um when I started working for Readings and Kildare about ten years ago, I hadn't published anything and I hadn't i I'd barely sent anything out, but it was started when I started working at that bookstore, everyone around me was a writer or some kind of artist, and um it gave me a real sense of community, just being part of this artistic sort of community that I hadn't had before um and, and then I started sending things out, and the people I was working with were reading my short stories and so responding glad. to them, and just incredibly encouraging, you know. Um, so then I just started getting published, published. And I thought, you know, when I won the Miles Franklin, one of the when I when I you know got up to accept the award, one of the you know main things I I, I wanted to do was thank you know that sense of community that I got from readings. It's honestly, it was. Absolutely vital for me. I'm not sure if it's true for everyone, but um, if you really come from, you know, what feels like the outside of the literary world or the artistic communities, then sometimes you need that kind of thing to give you that sort of feeling of being welcomed into that literary world, you know. And also to me, working in bookstores. Is like, you know, having a religion and working in in a, in a, in a church, you know. It's, it is like
0: that, I agree.
1: Yeah, and it's constantly affirming, especially when they keep on telling you no one's reading books anymore, the novel's dead, they keep on saying that. And then it's you've,
0: nonsense, isn't and it? And you
1: get people coming into the store every day who yeah. love literature and can't get enough of it. And, you know, that enthusiasm that you get from just general customers, they're just my favourite people in the world, just the people that love books, you know. So... I, it's not a coincidence, really. I mean, I work with other writers like Miles Allenson. He published a great book last year called Fever of Animals, Jessica Owl, Al, Jared Elson. You know, all the people I work with yeah, are so deeply interested. They might not actually be writers, but they're so deeply interested in, in literature. When they give you feedback for something you wrote, it isn't just, a, you know, it's good or bad or whatever. It's, you know, these kinds of responses that really help you calibrate your work, you know. So it's been really important to me.
0: Alex, we were so delighted when you won that Miles Franklin. I remember being at the awards night and looking around at all of our colleagues and some of us, including myself, we had tears in our eyes. We were thrilled, so congratulations, but we're not here to yeah. actually talk about that book.'re uh, we here to talk end about your the, the new readings love book. yeah we're here <laughs> to talk about your new book, yeah. Atlantic Black. Would you like to tell me a little about that?
1: Yeah, sure, it's a much easier book to talk about than the last one, you know. The last book, uh, which I've been talking now about, about uh, that book for the last year and a half or two, I suppose. Um, but you know, I never got a, a real handle on how to actually, from a bookseller's perspective, sell it. You know, who wants to read a book about Bosnian refugees? And
0: actually, quite a lot of people,
1: yeah, <laughs> not so much before the Miles Franklin Award, yeah, <laughs> but um. Yeah, you know, I didn't do too badly. We actually got two reprints on that before. But anyway, Atlantic Blacks of Much, uh, it's a very different book. It uh, takes place, for one thing, not in the Melbourne suburbs. And it's not really an Australian book at all. It's a, it's set on an ocean liner, um, the Aquitania. And uh, that ocean liner is traveling from the Americas to Europe, um, to Calais specifically in France. and In, um, in
0: 1939.
1: 1939, yeah. yeah. And the whole book takes place within a 24-hour period. And that sort of sense of compression was really important to me. Not only the compression of that space, of that ship, but but also the compression of that time. For that for the whole book to take place within a 24-hour period was really important to me as well. And sometimes you do these things as a kind of challenge to yourself, but also just simply to renew the whole act of writing for yourself. Because, you know, with Black Rock, White City, it takes place in the Australian suburbs, and, you know, there's much, as much time as you want. You know, um, with something like this, you know, you've got a completely new sort of environment to explore. I thought I found that incredibly uh, exciting but also dense environment to explore because you've got upper class, middle class, lower class, yeah. all crammed in together, you know, um, from all, com- all parts of the world, um, all moving together towards a Europe that is just about to explode and sit off this, you know, conflagration of violence across the whole globe, you know. So I found that really an interesting thing. But the 24-hour period was also significant to me as well because if you feel like something awful might happen, that oh, clock as certainly. it ticks, you know, when it starts ticking at the, at the start of that twenty four hours, it's just a tick, 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 tick. But there's as you get closer a, to the end, it's a, that tick. A feeling tick, of dread with <laughs> just. Yeah. Well, I read an interview with Raymond Carver a long time ago, and one of the things he said that he loved most in his own writing and writing of um, uh, of writers that he admired was a sense of menace. And you seem <laughs> to have captured that very well. Yeah. Actually. Well. Yeah, to me that's that's really like something that you as a writer. What how do you how do you create a compelling atmosphere? How do you create, you know, movement in a in a work? How do you feel? How do you create a sense of urgency? You know, these are hard things to do, but that sense of menace, if you if you can find that, but I mean, you know, you're not doing that as kind of arbitrary or sort of artificial sort of thing. It's just really responding to the world that you're living in. You know, any time you look at the news. Of course, the menace that you feel in that news, just today's headlines, was uh, you know Trump and America moving towards cold war settings with the nuclear bombers flying towards North Korea. Mm. Like we are on the verge of a nuclear holocaust. You know, you can and he's promised total annihilation of North Korea, as though that's nothing, as though you're talking about the execution of one man rather than the annihilation of a whole country. So you that's know, the kind of menace like, that you respond like to. It. you could
0: write about that. You, that I could feel be like your I did wood. really. Like, but well, you did with this, actually. There was that sense that the world was changing, but here was this young woman trying to make sense of all these different classes and her position in it over this
1: yeah.
0: heartbreaking 24 hours. How difficult was it to be in the mind of a 17-year-old young woman? Um had, have Because I, I, in all your other writing, I don't think that you've ever been, you had a, a female protagonist yeah, like well, this
1: before. Well, Black, Black Rock, White City really directly led into this because while Black Rock, White City starts with Jovan, the first three yeah. chapters are from that traditional sort of male perspective. Traditional for me, I suppose. Um well, you're male. <laughs> e- easiest for me to write. And then what really like, um, illuminated my mind was Susanna his wife, and she becomes just as important a character as as he is, if if not more significant. In fact, in Black Rock White City, I think she's the true hero of of the novel. And you know, I was delighted by her as a character, and I was delighted that I felt really connected on a on a on a you know fundamental sort of level of being to her as a person, as a character. I didn't find her challenging at all. And so, at the end of Black Rock White City. Atlantic, like I started writing that about six months later, I think. And, yeah, right. and really it was like an extension of that experience I had with Susanna. Yeah. the ability to write her as a character made me feel like I can keep on going on with that Either, particular perspective. Even with a, with a young
0: it. a young woman like, Yeah, a young yeah.
1: well, um, she's she's to me, if it was to be like a seventeen year old girl in today's world who's gonna go to you know, shopping malls to pick out dresses and, yeah. you know, listening to like fashionable music and I would feel uh, m- much more disconnect to that type, type of personality than I do a young woman who's living in 1939, you know. And
0: Although can I say that I do think that you captured her quite well because what I, I always think that being 17 is one of the toughest ages of all time, even in our modern ages now. Yeah. You know when you think about seventeen uh, year olds, they have all of the longings of adulthood in them, all of the intelligence, all this whole hope for the future, and none of the power. And certainly, I think that's something that you caught very well in your writing with Atlantic mm-hmm. Black, that here was this young woman on the brink of sort of you know adulthood and and having the whole world in front of her. Mm-hmm and absolutely none of the power.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's lovely of you to say that. I mean, I suppose that is definitely the perspective that I was looking to explore. Um, that vulnerability, I think, is is really... Yeah, it is, is really, right. um, the- it's, it, Artistically speaking, it's just when you're really open, you know, that's what you're looking for with characters. Someone that is ready to have a new experience of themselves and of the world because the most boring kind of character is the kind of character that just thinks they know it all.
0: Yeah, of course. You
1: know, they know who they are. There's nothing more to to understand, you know, which is like working within a kind of nutshell. So if you've got compression of time and a compression of space like I have with this book, what you really need though, then is a character that is exploding with perspective and trying to understand everything, you know, looking for insights through every conversation, everything she sees.
0: I found uh, one of the most extraordinary parts of your novel, Alex, was that sense of, I don't know, the the just position, I guess, of here's this young woman on the brink of, of so much. And in that sense, that's a very hopeful place to be in. But yet at the same time, you just feel so sure that it's not going to end well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. The world is about to explode. That's right.
0: And so you know that you have this, you you understand that sort of the history of that time. You don't quite know how this novel is going to end and we're not going to spoil it for our listeners today because, uh, except I will say, I will say that I did read the ending three times just to make sure that I had it well, right. On the
1: subject of the ending, what I love about the ending. Yeah, yeah but write, you cannot give the ending away. It, no, of course I won't. I'm too much of a bookseller <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but I'll say that what I love about the ending, while I had a very definite idea of what the ending was, result, what the result of that ending is, I've had people, close readers, who in fact I told what the ending was, still have differences of opinions on it. And I love that, I love that sense of it being so poised in a particular moment, where people could go, I think this is what happens, or this is what happens, and both, to me, are really, you know, valid and... And lovely, just to, to have that. I'd I, I never want to have a book that just shuts down and there's nothing else to it, you know.
0: Once I had read the ending, you know, two, three times, I had that experience and I'm sure that many of our listeners have had this experience before too, when you put the book down and then you look around your lounge room and everything is just as it, as it was and you almost feel like you have to go outside. That's, and that's what I did. I had to take the dogs. I had to walk down to the creek. I had to look mm. at the, the sort of the sun coming through the trees and say,
1: okay, yeah. this
0: is just a story. Yeah. It's time to get your life back.
1: <laughs> the loveliest um, response I've had to this book, and I didn't get it so much with Black Rock, White City, but um, I suppose they're very different books. But with this book, I keep on getting people saying that it's lived with them for weeks afterwards. That oh, they,
0: well, it's very atmospheric. It's... It's uh you certainly do have a sense of being on that ship. Yeah. With nowhere to go in a way, except up or down.
1: Yeah. It's oh and and you're moving across these And those corridors. Those long long corridors, you know? It's just so that's the thing about the Atlantic is that it's really beyond imagination. We really cannot encompass that kind of space. We can't encompass that kind of depth and we can't encompass that kind of time as well because the ocean Mm. is the womb of creation. It really is. It's It's, where everything came from. So that's that sort of – and you're just skating over the surface of it. I found that really a lovely sort of idea is that you're just across just the surface of that. You're um,
0: you're, an absolute master at this type of writing, but I am telling you, Alex, I am never – Ever going on an ocean liner no, <laughs> as long as I. I think it's pretty safe these days. <laughs> I don't There's care. Some
1: incredible ships out there. They're like ten times the
0: That's over. I've had a
1: few people who um, are old enough to have been on ocean liners tell me that they found it, you know, really accurate an experience of what it was like, and uh, that's delightful to me because I've never been on a ship that big.
0: Did you have to do very much research?
1: Yeah, constantly. Yeah. You're, you're constantly so what did you doing read? Research. Um, well, I read um, a book called Dead Wake um, by, what's his name now? Larson, I think. Yeah, right. um, I forget I forget his, his name, but it's about um, the Lusitania, um, which was, you know, built around the same time as the Aquitania. And while the that ship was destroyed by German submarines, um during the Second World War, there was a real experience of being on the ship. Just what people pack to get on, you know, what it's like to move around that ship. He does. He, he did a lot of. He did a lot of research and a lot of detail. He, because he's a historian, he does a lot more research and de- um, puts a lot more detail than I actually need as a novelist. You know, my main job as a novelist is to create characters that live and breathe. You know, and the details that I select are all about those characters. Of course, of you know, course, rather it's a than. Way of- you know, and also like with this particular book, while I did I do a lot of research, there's a book that I've got at home which is just about the Aquitania, just the you know the layout, the the rooms. It's the most boring stuff you could find as well, <laughs> but you need all that too. Just you, you do, know, just
0: to get that detail. Like,
1: what rooms they had, like were, we're the smoking rooms were. You got a map, maps of the place. Um, you know, it's whole history. So I read through that and looked at all the pictures, and those pictures were incredible because, you know, they just don't exist anywhere else. But, you know, you also do research where it's this great, like, video that I found in these British archives where the Aquitania was – it's just like a camera was set up on a tripod, I think, on one of the decks while the Aquitania is going through this awful storm.
0: Oh, I hate it and so And you much. just –
1: It's silence. But you can just feel the immensity of the ocean as it's crashing over the the ship, you know? And that oh. guy that video that's I just there just in the archives of this British, you know, Maritime Museum thing is like fifteen minutes long or something. And you just watch that, you know, and you feel something when you're when you're there. You get this sort of sense of what it's like to be on a ship in the middle of you know, this immensity. But um yeah, it's about the characters really.
0: When I was reading your book, I did actually uh think about what, who your influences were, because it's such a, a beautifully written and constructed book, so literary in that sense, that mm. I wondered whether you had uh, read very much of some of the earlier writers that that we celebrate now, like, like even Herman Melville and yeah. uh, you know some of those sort of people, where every word. Does count H- had you like it is Are these books that have influenced you in the past? Yeah, Melville
1: definitely um, yeah. is an influence. Not so much Moby Dick, which I don't think is a book where like every word is considered. I mean, it is considered, but it's just such a maximal sort of story. Sure. He throws so much in there. Whether whether and I question sometimes whether. You know, half of that is really relevant to the story. and um, But he's an incredible short story writer, you know. Um, You know, um, so...
0: Yeah, I do. I I can almost see some of... um, In reading your book, I felt like I could see some of the influences of that sort of earlier writers. And I even thought about uh, people like Henry James and, uh, you know, just
1: where for sure Henry James was, was definitely an influence like, oh. especially something like Daisy Miller yeah. which you asked me how, how do you you know write a 17 year old girl well you know you know yeah. Daisy Miller is a masterpiece and Henry James wrote that and then also Anna Karenina you know Tolstoy wrote that yeah. you know and you know um, Madame Bovary Flaubert's yeah. you know book so men looking to inhabit a particular perspective, you know. And when like Flaubert was asked about, you know, who's Madame Bovary based on, he goes, "C'est moi," you know, it's me. And I find that deeply significant because not just something like, you know, um, you know, it's just you with, you know, a few sort of feminine sort of traits, but that there's a Jungian sort of idea that um, within every man is a female soul, within every woman is a masculine soul. And that the sort of uh, idea of Jungian psychology is to find a kind of balance and to find a full humanity if you were able to fully balance all those elements. And he says that the reason for that is because of the way our culture suppresses certain things, yeah. you know, in a woman or in a man. And, and that's so-
0: actually one of the uh, themes perhaps in this book that you do tackle. Like there are times when Katarina the main character, is, is – uh, you know, she she uses language that perhaps uh, women of that time wouldn't have used, and she's strong.
1: Mm. She's strong, and also, also and and also vulnerable, and yeah, she is. and also incredibly naive. But that's what I find really interesting about that age, is because you know we're li- we're dealing with 1939. I mean, mm. today's today is patriarchal, patriarchal enough as it is, you yeah. know, but 1939 was even worse. And um, but I I felt like. If she was young, if she was like fourteen years old, she would still be a child, you know. That's right. And if she was a bit older than seventeen, she would be really forced into the various roles that were given to women. Mm. She'd have to have cho- chosen yeah. a, a partner or someone that yeah. she's going to marry. You know, well, she would have been a wealthy family. She's at the, yeah, but she's at that age of seventeen where. She's just escaped childhood. she hasn't quite been pressed into you know the role of a uh, of you know uh, a full full grown woman. she's still able to explore she's still uh, drifting through that she's, world between adulthood and and um childhood, which I found really like and compelling. especially i
0: mean her parents have have for for the sake of this conversation are not in the picture she has this complicated relationship with her mother who's who's taken a turn and no one knows what's happened to her father yeah.
1: yeah. At the very But the, the, the fact that her family oh. is so important to her indicates how young she is. That's right. You know what I mean? Well, like the if, influence of the mother. If she dual. was 25, what, she wouldn't be talking about her mother or father or her, or her, her brother. brother. And someone said to me uh, um, about how the ship is a kind of microcosm of the world, you know? And I thought, yeah, that's fair enough. But also, um, the family is a microcosm of the world. Of course. And the disintegration of that particular family.
0: Heartbreaking.
1: Is the disintegration of... The kinds of things that keep the world functioning, you know, like the, the agreements that are made between countries, when oh. they start decaying and start disintegrating, it feels like it does when you're on the inside of a family Absolutely. that is coming apart at the seams, you know. Well, there's,
0: there's shame and there's hope and there's guilt and there's There's loyalty and betrayal and, you know. Absolutely. Um, Alex, I think I might get you to read just a wee passage just at the very beginning of the book, just so that our listeners can get an idea of how measured your writing is, and a bit of an, an introduction to, to Katarina and what, okay. a, what a sparky woman she is.
1: Um, it's lo- lovely to be invited to read something. I usually wouldn't do dialogue, but I'll give it a go. Um, Just mainly, especially with this part, I don't do a good German accent, so you'll have to imagine when I speak from the perspective of the male voice, you know, uh, this German flavor of an accent. I really wish I could do it because it would sound lovely. But anyway, um, she says, Would you mind if I lit a cigarette? He asks. She looks at him, confused by the question. Why would he need her permission? Beneath your umbrella, so I can use the matches. She nods and he steps closer to her than she expected. She can smell the odour of his body, not sure whether she finds it pleasing or repugnant. Perhaps both, as she has found some men, repellent and welcome at the same time. He opens his long coat and from an inner pocket removes an engraved silver cigarette case and, and matches. His fingers are wet enough that they glisten, Would you like one, he asks, and she nods, though she's never been able to draw on a cigarette without coughing. The flash of light and the smell of phosphorus are lovely. He lights both hers and his own with the same match. Two cigarettes in his mouth. One more intimacy she didn't know she had agreed to. His mouth looks dry, yet they're close enough to kiss. He breathes out an exhalation of tobacco smoke. She's always enjoyed the smell. She draws back on the cigarette, expecting to cough it out, but she doesn't, and he's relieved. He buttons up his jacket with fingers that continue to tremble. His hair is dripping cold water onto her hand as she holds the umbrella. A warm, red glow for them both from above. A floral design, the red of poppies in the umbrella. Left behind by a passenger, perhaps years previously, How did you know I speak English, she asks. I have seen you out here the last two days reading your books. I was surprised at such a young woman keeping company with Henry James. Mine own English is not so good to read Henry James without translation. Sometimes I think I'd like to read him in translation myself, she says. The German laughs. Katerina is surprised to have made him laugh. She wonders whether he is mocking her or perhaps trying to ingratiate himself. Yet a moment later, he says, Weedersen, and walks away. When he has disappeared through the bulkhead hatch and she's alone on the sun deck, Katerina takes a cherry wood box from her shoulder. She thinks of it as a jewellery box, even though Audreyus Clover used it to store cigars for a few years in Warsaw. One day it was empty, and Katerina began to use it as a place to keep Amelia, her favourite doll, putting Amelia to bed every night in the box until she saw Grandfather Michaelis in this casket at her first funeral and understood that the bodies of our loved ones are put in boxes when we want to bury them. So Katerina started using her father's cigar box instead for flower heads and autumn leaves and acorns and pine cones. River stones and seashells she found while exploring when they moved to Lisbon, and then later for letters in her diary. She throws the box over the railing the German stood at a few moments before and watches it open on its loose hinges, spill its contents, and barely cause a splash in the restless rush. Contemplating suicide, it hasn't occurred to her until this moment. She is sure of it. The way he was leaning over the rail, trembling, not from cold, but from how close he had wandered to the edge of his life, hearing her slip and fall, a slight squeak with every step across the wet deck, unfolding her her umbrella, folding and unfolding it again, the noise of the gulls and his memories of a previous crossing when a whale had waved, majestic, a desire awoken, for the warmth of smoke and air in the lungs and the thought of being so close to another their breaths might mingle, leaning over the rail without form and void, darkness on the deep, faceless. Katerina sucks at the dead cigarette and realises the ember has been blown away by the sea breeze.
0: Oh, Alex, what an extraordinary... Passage of writing, I think it really is uh, a view into the rest of the novel. I do think you're one of the most compelling writers there is at the time. I do think this book, Atlantic Black, is going to do very, very well. I will tell our listeners uh, this is a book, a novel to be reckoned with. You need to take your time with it. You need to savour every word and you need to uh, perhaps read it in the bright sunshine so that you will be (laughs) (laughs) a direct contrast.
1: Don't read it in an ocean liner, in a darkness (laughs) (laughs) sun. That's what I'm saying.
0: That's right. Don't read it in a cabin. It's not going to be good for you.
1: I would think it could be a good holiday read by a poolside somewhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, yeah. You want to be feeling some warmth on your back at the end of this novel. We ne- we've nearly out of time, but I want to just finish on a question that we ask all of our mm-hmm. people on on the readings podcast. What are you reading now?
1: Um, well, I'm reading a collection of stories as I always am. Really, I really read novels. Actually, it's ironic since I've been <laughs> a, to be a ri- writer of novels uh, now <laughs> exclusively. <laughs> well, I do have a collection of stories coming out next year, um, but which I'm really excited. About, but what I read mainly is short stories. I find short stories to be the you know, the literary, the writer's form, you know. If yep. I get someone coming to the bookstore and say, I want this collection of stories and I want this collection of stories, my next question is you're a writer, you yeah. know, right? And I say, yeah, absolutely. So, you yeah. know, yeah, I'm reading at the moment. A great collection of um, st- stories by Anne Enright, um, uh-huh. Yesterday's Weather. I, you know, she's been on my radar for a long time. And you know what it's like, Chris, when you work in bookstores, you've got too many books. Yeah, there's so many choices. And I, I knew she won the booker. I knew she was, you know, really well considered. But she kind of seemed boring to me. You know, she's writing from this, you know, I don't know. You just sort of characterize some, some people without knowing what they're about. And really, so it doesn't even matter what they're about at all it's all about the voice it's mm. all about the voice they could be writing about anything and then in right just there's this one particular story that just it made, it made like I was. I was reading it. It just made me cry. Mm. And anyone that can make me cry while I'm reading, I just love. You know, <laughs> I mean, you it's just, very cathartic. I don't know what it? it is about <laughs> crying when you read. When when you do, it's really rare. But when you do, feel so moved that the tears are coming out of your out of your do eyes. Do you know what I think it is?
0: It's because it's you feel private. thankful for that. It, it's and it's well, you're very private. No one else is reading what you're reading at that moment. Yeah. yeah. So that's. That's just yours yeah. for that moment. Yeah. And that's, what, that's what authors can do.
1: Yeah, that's it. I, I think it's also that we usually live such singular lives. We're so, as much as we want to reach out of ourselves, we're always just in this little box of self, you know what I mean? And then when we, we read up. this story, <laughs> suddenly we are not al- alone in that box anymore. You know, that's, that light, that's why I think, you know, dark stories compel me is because – that's kind of where we live, and then suddenly, when some light comes through there, you feel part of the human race, part of <laughs> the human experience. I'm no longer just myself; I'm part of this incredible thing. And yeah, Anne Inright. I haven't read any of her novels yet, and I probably will get around to giving it a go. Um, but like, really, her short stories and this one collection, Yesterday's Weather. And it's what's particularly great about that, and I love when when this happens, is that a writer will have um, maybe a couple or three collections, and suddenly they all get put into one big book. So, you get all of their stories, you know, and um, you can explore a whole body of work that took, you know, yeah. that was assembled by her over 20 or 30 years, you That's know, true. and uh, she's a really good writer. So, Anne Enright. Um,
0: and uh, so there you are, reading your short stories just before you drift off or to bed. What are you watching? Are you watching anything? Yeah, at the I've moment?
1: watched a really couple of great, great um, shows recently. Ken Burns's um, Vietnam series is just monumental. It's incredible.
0: Look at you all light and breezy. And Deuce. <laughs> the
1: Deuce by um David Simon. He, he wrote he did um the the wire yeah. years ago. Yeah. And that was incredible. It was you know
0: I think the wire is still one of the most significant yeah. pieces. Well, of as as literary TV. people, yeah.
1: you and me, Chris, and everyone that's listening to this podcast, you know, he really brought the novel to TV. He Really did. He did in a, a way that hadn't been done before. People he did had talked about that
0: layers and layers and layers.
1: Yeah. People yeah. had talked about that before, but really he did it in a way that hadn't been seen before, and I don't know if since. You know, he really brings a novelistic sort of way. Every episode is just simply a chapter. Everything
0: know. seems a little tried out. Characters, after
1: that, it? yeah, yeah. The characters are so well developed, and the Deuce. This new series that David Simon's got oh, came I'm that just look came out. For this. Yeah, it's a real return to form because he's done oh. a few things since The Wire, which are kind he of okay. Did and a yeah, few
0: things like yeah, they're
1: okay. But when you watch this, you go, "Oh, this is The Wire again." And it's so good, you know what I mean? Oh, I'm it's excited! It's New York, 1971. Um, he does the same thing that he did because he's always got that political perspective as well. The characters are what it's all about, really. You know, that's what we really want. These characters live and breathe, and the acting is fantastic because the actors can feel the quality coming off the page. Has he
0: used some of the same actors? He, do, he does. Yeah, that's and it's great come, seeing yeah, those characters yeah, yeah. come
1: back. And what David Simon does with the character, these actors that come back, he never gives them the same kind of role. Like if they were like a, you know, a criminal in the previous this one, then they've got to be like a, a cop in the next one. You know, if they were a cop in the previous yep. one they gotta come back as a criminal. Just because he wants to vary it up and but so yeah, like I was saying, with his political perspective, what he did for drugs with the with the Y, he's doing with pornography and sex and that kind of thing with uh the new one, the Deuce, you know, and it, it's just incredibly vivid and the acting is incredible. You know, it's just coming out now, so it's just, I reckon it's going to light everyone's world up in the next few weeks. I'm That's certain. what I've been doing to recover from the writing of Atlantic Black, because it's been hard to launch into some other literary sort of works. I've been watching a lot of Deuce and going back to the White. And also, like I said, Ken Burns' Vietnam. What an amazing piece of work that is. Really, you, don't, you know, what's what's amazing to me about it is that it's this is a documentary that is not about the American experience. It interviews even more, I think, than 50% more, more than 50% of the, the documentaries from the perspective of the Vietnamese, right. North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, cool the American war. Vietnamese refugees, you know, women that fought that war, you know, the bombers that were bombing those women as they were rebuilding the mm-hmm. roads. And also, I think, is incredibly vital about this particular documentary. Not only is it an incredible piece of work in its own right, which gives us a sense of what Vietnam War was about, but it really gives us a sense of how the world moved. From the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, and now is precipitating back to Korea, North Korea, and and that whole sort of American policy is so beautifully like um, crystallized in this particular documentary. It really shows you where we're at now, you know. And I find it particularly compelling because you know that sort of idea of conflict, how we get involved in violence. Yeah, that was at the centre of Atlantic Black because Italy. 1939. This uh, was within, you know, 20 years of the First World War finishing. You know, you it's, you it's within it. with everyone, within everyone's vivid memory. You had fathers, brothers, you know, people dying that that you you know you knew, and you yourself perhaps were wounded, and, and yet we still went into the Second World War. That idea of how do we. You know, go from one act of violence again to another, and the traumatizing effect of these of these things, and how they propel us forward. And what with Ken Burns, what's wonderful about him is that he shows you that the only way we can understand, understand, the only way we can escape these cycles of violence, is through understanding. You know, through bringing bringing these um, these experience into full focus. You know, and that to me is the literary experience. That's why those. You know,
0: Is it
1: research? Really... Is it this research for another? Well, Who I don't knows? know. I recently I saw this interview with Marina Abramovich and she said something about how, you know, artists only really ever have, if they're lucky, one idea. Mm. I suppose she's re- redefining what idea means, but I think for me, if if that's true, then maybe conflict. Just... How? why do we do this, you know, thing? How do we get involved in it? And most importantly, how do we get out of it? How do we stop it? Because it seems vital, the way the world is now, the kind of weapons we've got, if we don't work this out. Alex you know, Patrick,
0: I'm very grateful to hear you say that because it shows me, uh, it tells me that you're, you're actually a very hopeful person and yeah. that actually, uh, even though your writing perhaps deals with that conflict Uh, It's not the essence of who you are. Uh, Atlantic Black is an extraordinary novel. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I hope that many of our listeners get out there and buy it. You're right, it is about conflict. But perhaps it's about how humanity just keeps making mistakes. Thank you so much for the hours of pleasure that you gave me in reading this. And thank you so much for your time
1: today. So exciting to be able to share the book. It's you know, it's really thrilling. This is the first interview I've done since finishing the book only two or three months ago, you know, so it's just gone straight to the, to the well, presses and it's coming out. It's so exciting.
0: It's always a treat chatting with you. Thank you so much.